Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to yet another episode of Signals to Danger. Again, I want to start by thanking everyone who has been listening to the podcast. I appreciate every download that I'm getting and some of the feedback has been really helpful to point me in the right direction and improve the quality That's a trend I hope I'm going to continue with going forwards. If you are enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support it, the best thing you can do is let other people know about it. If you know people who might be interested, let them know about us. The more listeners, the better. Now another quick one from me before we get started is if there's some of you out there who might like a bit more light-hearted rail scene conversation in between episodes of Signals to Danger, I've recently stumbled across the Mess Room podcast. These guys are doing a great job, they're a few episodes in, just like we are, and there's a pretty good chance of some crossover in audience interests. You'll probably be able to find them where you found us, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy what they have to say. It's a short introduction for this episode, so now it's time for us to get going with episode 3. It was supposed to be an overnight convenience. Going to bed in one city, and waking up the next morning as you arrive in another While you slumber, hundreds of miles of rail pass below you, till you wake up to a Scottish sunrise and a breakfast. If you get that far. If the carriages of your train don't end up piled up at a station you were never meant to call at. It's 1975, and this week, we're going to Nuneaton. Ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals. Surviving sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for politics. A routine everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured in one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle to untangle police and fire were to say that people were killed in 76 inches when train traffic from London King's Cross to King's Lynn derailed on the east coast main line and 150 firemen from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. 
This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. Now, as I've done each episode, allow me to put some context on the era that this accident occurred in. The year, 1975. January saw the release of the VW Golf, and in February Maggie Thatcher won the leadership of the Conservative Party, laying the groundwork for her to become the first female PM four years later. April brought the end of the Vietnam War with the fall of Saigon. In rail, the London Underground had seen the Moorgate crash on the 28th of February. Not including the 7-7 bombings or some wartime incidents, it is considered the worst accident the Underground has experienced. We may well come to Moorgate at some point later on in this podcast. In September of 1975, the National Railway Museum was officially opened in York by the Duke of Edinburgh. Now, this is the first episode that we're doing where we're not within the post-privatised landscape of franchised train operating companies. In 1975, we're still firmly within the period of the national operator, British Rail. On the 5th of June, while most of the day's train service was winding up and engines were being put to bed in sidings and sheds, One train was a hive of activity sat in the platforms at London's Euston station. This was the 2330 sleeper service from Euston up to Glasgow. Running under the head code 1 Sierra 26, the train consisted of 12 sleeping cars, a restaurant car and two bogey brake vans. With driver Jay McKay and senior second man Norman, the train departed Euston on time and headed out onto the main line. Norman took the controls. Now, our last two episodes have taken place on the East Coast Main Line, famous for being the main artery for rail travel headed up the East Coast of the UK. Funnily enough, the West Coast Main Line fills the same purpose on the other side, connecting the capital with the cities of Birmingham, Manchester, up through to Carlisle and onwards towards the Scottish border. Once into Scotland, the line splits at Carstairs, heading east to Edinburgh and west to Glasgow. Now, between the East and West Coast main lines, the terrain differs quite a bit. The East Coast is home to some straight, level, flat sections of route, which leads to some significant speeds and less severe climbs. But the West Coast? That's forced to turn and weave as it climbs through Cumbria. This has led to a tough, but beautiful route, with locations like Shap and the Loon Gorge, where the scenery is magnificent, but the gradients are hard work. The line had been electrified throughout the 60s, meaning that workhorse electric locomotives such as the classes 86 and 87s could haul passenger and freight services at line speeds of up to 110 miles an hour. Now at the head of Sierra 26 was one of those locals, a class 86, capable of reliably running at the maximum speed of the line. They were a clear sign of the technological developments taking place on the network at this time. Except for tonight. Now, when 1 Sierra 26 reached King's Langley, just before midnight, the locomotive failed. A second loco needed to be sourced, and a second Class 86 was brought up from Willesden and coupled to the head of the train. The original loco wasn't removed, it would only add extra time onto the delay. After around an hour, 
midnight 58, the train started northbound once again, with the first Class 86 being dragged dead behind the new relief loco. Following this delay, Jay McKay took the controls himself. Now, with a late running of 75 minutes, he did all that he could to make up time. He drove at the maximum permitted speed. All of those coaches were rated for 100 mile an hour running, and the loco was more than capable. However, the brake bands were only allowed to run at 90. On a normal day, none of this would be a problem. The timings for these sleeper services actually only required running of 80 miles an hour to help maintain comfort levels, and making up time wasn't that unrealistic on a journey of this length, because between Houston and Glasgow, 343 miles. And so the train was driven hard. It was brought up to 90 wherever possible, although this was made more difficult by the already heavy train being added to by this additional 81 tonnes of a failed locomotive. As the train travelled between Rugby and Nuneaton, Mr McKay followed his usual process. He took power off as the train travelled down the bank from Shilton. Now, briefly rewinding to the night previous, this very same driver had taken a train up the same route, from London as far north as Crewe. On that journey, he had travelled north without incident. By the time he was on the approach to Nuneaton, he had dropped down to 80 miles an hour. This was due to the fact he was expecting to see some advance warning signs for a temporary speed restriction slightly further down the line as it went through Nuneaton Station. Just outside the station was a second sign which marked the start of the actual limit, and by the time the train reached that sign, his speed had been reduced to just below 20 miles an hour, which was what was needed to safely traverse the temporary track work that was now located in Nuneaton Station. On the morning of the 6th, driver McKay and his locomotive rounded the corner to be faced with the point where the advance warning signs should have been. He told the inquiry into the accident that he was consciously looking out for the sign at this point, as he left his brake in the initial setting, slowly bleeding the speed off. He passed a green signal, telling him the line ahead was clear, and shortly after he saw the advance warning signs on the down slow line, which had branched off to his left. Now, as we know from previous episodes, down means away from London, as our train was travelling, and slow describes the use of the lines normally for stopping services or slower ones. Our train, an express, was routed on the down, fast lines northbound. Now, driver McKay realised at this point, he'd seen nothing of the restriction sign on the down main, which should have been present before the line split into a fast and a slow. He surmised later that he considered the lights could have gone out but he assumed he would have seen the outline of the sign he thought the board's absence must have meant that the speed restriction had been lifted and that he was able to continue at line speed for the area there was a slight downhill gradient so driver McKay released the train's brakes fully with no power applied and a slope downwards the 749 ton train maintained a speed of around 80 miles an hour as it approached Nuneaton station now at this time, the tracks through the station were undergoing a major relaying and rationalisation. The alignment was being changed as part of a system of improvements. To facilitate this, one of the junctions between the fast and slow lines had been replaced with a section of plain track. A new crossover was going to be installed at a later date, but the plain track that had been put in had been laid to conform with the new alignment of the tracks. So what that meant was that between the existing up fast and the relayed track, 
there was a short section of sharply curved track. Perfectly safe when traversed at the design speed of 20 miles an hour, with a margin for error. In fact, a permanent way supervisor who had been working in the area stated that over the 10 previous days of this restriction, he'd seen a number of trains exceed that limit, but not by more than around 5 miles an hour. In fact, no reasonable margin for error would allow for the circumstances in the wee hours of the 6th, because as one Sierra 26 approached the station at 1.54, the driver saw another sign directly ahead, a backlit number 20. This was the commencement sign for the temporary speed limit over the transition to the new track. The driver immediately put the brake into emergency, but it was far too late. As the lead loco hit the curved section of track, it derailed almost immediately. In fact, the report said that there was virtually no chance of it remaining on the line. Yards after entering the realigned section, the track had been burst by the locomotive, freeing the rails from the sleepers and eliminating all of the gauging. The first loco derailed, and the second that had been dragged dead joined it as soon as it encountered the burst section of the tracks. In fact, as each vehicle of the train reached that point, in turn, they followed the locos into derailment, all except for the very rear vehicle of the train. The locomotives quickly became detached from the train, and indeed from each other. The leading loco housing the driver skidded forwards until it ended up halfway through the station in the ballast between the two running lines. The second loco began to slew to the side impacting and damaging around 150 feet of the platform for the downfast. It eventually mounted the platform, and it came to rest with the leading cab wedged under the station canopy as it rested on the platform surface. This image of a train on a platform would be eerily echoed nearly 27 years later at Potter's Bar, which we covered last time. The story of what happened to the coaches showed the force of the collision, as each vehicle became involved in the derailment. The leading coach, a brake van, remained upright but was damaged beyond repair. The second, a sleeping car, was upright with severe damage and the third, which was also a sleeping car, had turned onto its side and had seen its bogies stripped away. These three vehicles remained coupled together and they almost formed a zigzag shape with the leading end at the entry to the space between the two platforms. The next two vehicles had derailed more spectacularly. Both were sleeping cars, and both had ended up perpendicular to the track, laid across it at right angles. The worst part of where they ended up was that they had actually crushed the trailing end of the third vehicle, as they had been forced up onto it by the force of the crash. The remaining ten vehicles of the train remained coupled together, and more or less in line, the leading one, which was the sixth overall, on its side, but the remaining nine upright and all derailed except for the rearmost brake van. The damage seemed to progressively decrease as you got closer and closer to the rear of the train. When all was said and done, four people had been killed in the derailment, two passengers and two attendants from the sleeping cars. They were joined by a further two passengers who succumbed to their injuries later in hospital. Now normally at this point in the podcast I would list the names of those who had sadly lost their lives. The issue is that they are rarely, if ever, listed in the official reports. I've normally found them from contemporary news articles or other sources such as the coroner's court transcripts. In fact, the further back you go, the harder some of that data is to find, so there will be times, such as this, that 
I'm unable to actually name the victims of the instance. One thing I will say is if anybody does have access to that information, please get in touch and I will add it into the introduction of the next episode. The alarm was raised almost immediately by the signalman on duty at Nuneaton Power Signal Box, which was located just to the south of the point of derailment. He and a supervisor, also present, witnessed the crash and the immediate aftermath. The emergency services were contacted and attended with what was described in the report as commendable speed. The damage to some of the vehicles was excessive. People had been trapped and rescue made difficult. There are videos of firefighters atop the wreckage using an acetylene torch to cut into the side of an overturned sleeper car. Now, although the crash occurred at 6 minutes to 2 in the morning, it was 0709 before the final injured person was removed from the train, and just under another 10 hours till the final body was recovered at 1728. In fact, the search for other victims continued until 1145 the next morning. As the train was so damaged in places, it took that length of time for rescuers to be sure they hadn't missed anybody. When everyone was accounted for, 38 passengers had been taken to Manhattan's Manor Hospital, 10 of whom were admitted and detained for further treatment. Now one thing I'd like to say here is that we always think of certain organisations turning up to accidents and forming the emergency response, police, fire brigade, etc. Now the report into Nuneaton which in this case was published by the Department for Transport in 1976 and written by the Rail Inspectorate, specifically a major rose, made specific reference to the assistance provided by other organisations. He wrote how through the long hours of the rescue operations, valuable help was given by the Women's Royal Voluntary Service, who set up an emergency centre, and by the Salvation Army and other voluntary groups. In fact, this is not particularly unusual. The presence of support organisations and voluntary groups at these scenes support the efforts of the hundreds of people who end up descending on the sites. Teas, coffees and sandwiches can go a long way in these terrible circumstances. So, if you've listened to the episodes before this, you'll know that this is the point that I list the factors the investigation needed to ascertain, and if that's what you thought, you'd be right. While the root cause of the derailment wasn't really under dispute, a train went over a piece of track at four times the speed needed to do so safely, track designed for 20 miles had a devastating effect on the 80 miles an hour sleeper service. What the investigation needed to explain was actually the factors that led up to this. First being, why did the driver of the train, Jay McKay, not decrease the speed of his train to a level sufficient for safe passage? Two, Were there any failings in the rules and safety systems surrounding temporary speed restrictions which led to this derailment taking place? And three, did the equipment that could have prevented the accident operate as it should? Before we go any further, it's time for me to go into this episode's Railway 101. It's become somewhat of a feature on these episodes. To understand accidents related to speed on the railway, It can be quite helpful to have a basic understanding of how speed limits work on the UK rail network. I put a bit of an unusual emphasis on limits because I really want to differentiate it from how speed limits work on the road. The maximum speed a train can travel on a section of track is referred to as the permissible speed. 
First and foremost, this is dictated by the characteristics of the track, features in the area, the signalling system, curvature, amongst other things. If you're approaching stations, complex point work, etc., those speeds will be lower. The speed is also affected by the rolling stock, the trains and the carriages that are being operated. So, the train on this state, for example, was only permitted to run at 90 miles an hour, but the line speed was higher than that at times. The main difference between speed limits and permissible speeds on the railway is that on the railway, that is the speed drivers are expected to drive at, unless specifically instructed otherwise. This has come up a lot in the post-Carmont media conversation. If a train is travelling on a line with a 75 miles an hour line speed, he is expected to drive at 75 unless instructed otherwise. In fact, the timetable and associated train timings will be written expecting that speed from the service. The other thing that's quite important to say is that train drivers don't go out and look to see what speed the signs say and then react to them, like you do on the road every day. The signs actually serve as more of a marker to show where the boundary between speeds is. In fact, each route that a driver signs, they are expected to know the permissible speed of each section of the entire route. It's actually an integral part of their training and the ongoing management of their competency to drive trains on that route. In short, if the speed of the track decreases, trains will normally be down to more or less the right speed before those signs even become visible to the driver. This knowledge of the route, and the fact that drivers tend to drive the same area most days, means that when those limits change, it's really important to make sure that it's made abundantly clear to avoid anything being missed. Depending on how much advance notice is given of the change, depends on how that notification is given. So, for example, if track workers find a fault on the railway, an emergency speed restriction, or an ESR, can be implemented. Train crew are notified of the restriction by a notice that's sent to their depots where they start work. They're known as late notices, and they're put up in a special late notice case, which every member of train crew are obliged to read when they sign on for duty. Signalers could also contact drivers to make sure they're aware of any emergency speed restrictions. Now ESRs are a short notice solution. With a little more planning, you get TSRs, temporary speed restrictions. That's what we had at Nuneaton. TSRs are quite often used in support of engineering works and are pre-planned in as part of them. This pre-planning gives an additional opportunity to make sure drivers are aware of that change. Each week, train crew are provided with a printed document which lists all of the alterations being made in that area. At the present time, these are called weekly operating notices, normally shortened to ones. They list temporary speed restrictions, permanent way operations, signal alterations, or any special instructions that are applicable to the routes that they're provided to cover. Now, these actually existed back in 1975, but they were called weekly engineering notices. But they gave pretty much all the exact same information to drivers and conductors so they knew any alterations that were being made on the area they were working. For example, in this situation, the weekly engineering notice provided to driver McKay had contained the details of all of the speed restrictions on that part of the West Coast Main Line including the 20 miles an hour at Nuneaton.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The last way that a driver can be informed of a speed restriction is through physical signs adjacent to the track, although there's a little more to them as well than just slapping up a lower speed limit sign next to the work site. In 1975, TSR signage consisted of at least three signs, one placed in advance of the restriction, and the other two at the start and end of the actual restricted section of track. The sign in advance is the warning sign. The version of these signs being used in 1975 consisted of a yellow board with a notch at one end and a point at the other, forming an arrow with two white gaslit lights within it. Just above the arrow was a backlit indication of the speed the restriction was for. So, if the speed was 20 miles an hour, the backlit number 20 appeared above the arrow. The warning board was usually placed at an appropriate braking distance from the restriction. So, as an example, if it took a mile to break from the line speed to the restriction speed, the warning board would be placed a mile before the start of the restriction. At the point where the TSR actually starts you'll find another sign, the commencement indicator. Now it used to simply be just a backlit letter C. By the mid-60s, they decided to put the actual limit in that sign. So just outside of Nuneaton Station on the 6th of June, a backlit number 20 marked the commencement of the restrictions. The last sign involved with the TSR was the termination sign. This marks where the restriction ends. Very simply, black background with a white capital T on it. Again, it was illuminated and once the rear of a train had passed that, the train could accelerate back up to the line speed. On the first question that the investigation had to ask, why the driver had disregarded the speed restriction, they actually found that the answer wasn't buried beneath layers of intrigue or behind walls of silence. It was quite simply explained by Driver McKay when he was interviewed as part of the investigation. As I said earlier, he had driven this section of track the night previous, without incident, and the speed restriction had been in place then, so there wasn't any immediately apparent reason why he shouldn't have achieved exactly the same on the 6th. When he was interviewed by Major Rose, he told how he was consciously looking out for the warning board as he approached the location he was expecting to find it, and how shortly afterwards he'd seen the lights of the warning board on the down slow. Now, as I said earlier, this was located after the two lines had branched out, so he should have passed his indicator board already. He realised at that point that he'd seen nothing of the down fast warning board, and so he decided that the restriction must have been lifted. He released the brakes of the train, and we've already covered what happens after that. Now, this testimony explains the basic reason that the driver acted in the way he did, 
but it also identifies some failing in the equipment. The board should clearly have been visible due to those three lights, but it wasn't, and we will get into that in a little more detail soon. The decision-making process described by Driver McKay doesn't really tally with the training and the rules around how TSRs are managed. As I described earlier, he'd received a weekly operating notice. In fact, he agreed this when he was interviewed that that was the most important part of the system and that the signage only formed a small part of it. The most recent weekly notice that the driver had received covered the period between the 24th of May and the 6th of June. This notice had listed clearly the restriction at Nuneaton and referred to it as being in place until further notice. At this point we can also start answering question 2 of those investigation points. There were rules in place that should have removed the ambiguity and saved Driver McKay from having to make this decision about what the absence of the sign meant. Rule T.21.1 that was in place at the time stated that in the event of a speed restriction being eased or withdrawn earlier than shown in printed notices, the warning board will be left in place and the speed restriction altered to show the highest speed at which trains may run. This means that if the restriction had been lifted, the sign would have been left there. The 20 would have been replaced with 100 to signify the change in permissible speed. The one thing Driver Maker should have been more concerned about was the complete lack of signage. In fact, after the accident took place, he and his second man had a brief conversation where they came to the conclusion that the lights must have been out. When we get to the conclusion of the report, Major Rose confronts the fact that Driver McKay claims to have consciously assessed the situation and decided that the restriction must have been lifted. Perhaps unusually, his comments in that section actually give the driver a little bit more credit than that. He wrote the following. Driver McKay claimed that he was keeping a careful watch out for the warning board and that when he saw no sign of it, he decided there and then that the speed restriction had been lifted and therefore allowed the train to continue towards Nuneaton at speed. If he did consciously make such a decision, it was this that led directly to the derailment. I am not, however, entirely convinced that it was a conscious decision that led him to continue at speed that night. Driver McKay was, and is, a very experienced driver. As such, I would regard it as completely out of character for him to have made a deliberate and reasoned decision to carry on at speed, merely because he had not seen the lights at the warning board. He had seen the warning board in position and correctly lit on the previous night. He had seen the nature and extent of the work on the downfast line at Nuneaton. He knew that the temporary speed restriction concerned was, according to the printed notice, supposed to remain in force until further notice. He knew that if the restriction had been lifted prematurely, the rules required the civil engineers to show the new permissible speed limit at the warning board, and not to remove the board completely and without warning. And on his own admission, he realised that it was possible that the lights might for some reason have failed. In light of all this, it seems incredible that a driver of his long experience and undoubted competence should have come deliberately, even on the spur of a moment, to such a completely unjustified conclusion. It is of course possible that he did so decide, and I cannot say that he did not. Only that I consider it unlikely. And that sums it up. 
Driver McKay was realistically too experienced to make such a wrong call when confronted with the evidence on the day. As far as I'm aware though, he didn't ever change that testimony. One point of note is that the rules which could have prevented this incident from happening didn't only involve the instant train. Between 22.23 on the 5th and 2 minutes to 1am on the 6th, there were 15 trains that had passed through the restriction and all of them had done so at the correct speed. On six of these trains, the crew reported back that the light which sat behind the speed indication, the top one behind the 20, had been out when they passed. Of the other nine, there was more or less a 50-50 split as to whether the light was lit dimly or brightly. All of the crews had believed that the two lights in the horizontal yellow bar had been lit when they passed. After they spoke to those crews, the investigators spoke to the crew of three trains which had passed the board between midnight 59 and the instant train. The first of these trains had actually been another sleeper service. It had departed Euston 15 minutes later than the Glasgow, but had actually overtaken it when they had failed at Kings Langley. Driver Irison of this train realised that the speed indicator light on the advance board was extinguished. Now, after Irison's train followed a driver Sharps hauling a motor rail train to Stirling. He was running late due to a weaker locomotive being provided for the service than normal. When he approached the speed restriction advance indicator, he couldn't see it. He eventually caught a glimpse of it in the dark as they passed, but it was clear that at this point, all three of the lights were extinguished. He was under no illusions as to whether the limit remained in place, so he continued to slow for the restriction. The last train to cross the restriction had been a Willesden to Runcorn freight, driven by a driver Turner. Now, his testimony was a little more, well, ambiguous. At the railway's internal inquiry, driver Turner had given testimony that possibly the right hand of the two horizontal lights might have been out, but when it came to the inspectorate's investigation, he gave an account that he had passed the downfast warning board at approximately 1.45 in the morning, and that all three of its lights were then illuminated. He said that the left hand of the two horizontal lights was more brilliant than the one on the right, and that he saw the indication of the speed, the 20 numerals at the top, and that they were quite bright. All of this despite the fact that the train that had passed before him had given testimony that all of the lights had been out. In fact, he actually suggested that the vibration of Driver Sharp's train may have somehow caused the lights to burn more brightly. In the end, it was a bit of a moot point, as Driver Turner had put quite simply, lied. On the 5th of January 1976, he submitted at his own request a signed statement to the railway officers. In this letter, he withdrew all of the evidence he had given at both inquiries about the warning board. In his new statement, he said that in this area, it had occurred to him that he may have forgotten his hand lamp, and he therefore bent down to see if it was in his bag. When he looked up again, the train had passed the warning board. He had seen nothing of the warning board or its lights. He admitted that all the previous evidence he had given in respect of the condition of the warning board had been false but he wasn't prepared to say why he'd not previously told the truth. The thing about all of these passing trains that had observed issues with the lights on the warning board was that they could all have prevented the accident. There was a rule 
which meant that rule T.25.5 stated that a driver who saw issues with these lights on these signs was to stop and report the issue. If they had, the signaller at Nuneaton would have arranged for the lamps to be relit, the warning sign restored to visibility, preventing driver McKay's poor judgement from ever having to come into play. Now, the last point that investigators really needed to understand was how the warning lamps ended up not being lit. There was an adequate supply of gas provided for the lamps that they remain for around a week. Two £42 bottles were provided and a valve was connected to them, so when both bottles had their valves open, it meant as soon as one bottle was exhausted, the supply automatically switched over to the second and the lamps would remain lit. As the bottles were checked by patrolmen, the empty bottle could then be swapped out for a fresh one. In theory. In fact, this is the correct procedure with a standard warning board, but it's not what was actually taking place. During the investigation, it was discovered that in the Nuneaton area, the practice had actually been to only open the valve on one of the bottles, and then to rely on patrolmen to check and manually switch the bottles over when they were exhausted. In fact, this had actually been the method of work in this area since the gas-lit boards were introduced nearly a decade earlier. Although no instance of lamps becoming extinguished due to gas running out had been reported prior, there existed a risk that was created by the ignorance of the correct operating instructions. Yet again, it was an avoidable set of circumstances. The investigation firmly placed the bulk of the blame with driver McKay. In fact, he actually ended up appearing in Birmingham Crown Court a year after the accident, up on six counts of manslaughter, although after a three-day trial, he was found not guilty. Major Rose did, however, stress that blame and responsibility must be shared by others, as he said in his conclusions. All those who failed to use the warning board propane gas equipment as it should have been used or who condoned its misuse, must share some of the responsibilities. Those drivers and second men, and including in those those who were not prepared as others were to admit to what they had seen, who saw lights out in the warning board, and who took no action, must share a larger proportion. And, in all probability, senior second man Norman failed to give his driver his full support in observing signals and line-side features. Like so many of the incidents that we're going to cover in this podcast, Nuneaton was avoidable and just didn't have to happen. Six lives lost again due to a lack of following procedures that had been put in place specifically to prevent these situations. British Rail started to look at ways of improving the safety of temporary speed restrictions very shortly after the accident. While the system of engineering notices was examined as part of it, it was deemed that they were perfectly adequate for the job. And like I said, they still exist today in the form of weekly operating notices, ones. BR took a great deal of interest in assessing the signage involved and the options for improvement, and from 1976, 
electrically lit warning boards were trialled around the southern region. They were eventually also trialled with flashing lights. Remember where I said if a limit was withdrawn early, they replaced that speed with the line speed? Well, in 1983, this was actually permanently replaced with what is known as a spate indicator, which stands for Speed Previously Advised Terminated Early. A diagonal line in a yellow box, that serves to further remove ambiguity around TSRs. Now, nowadays, a large number of the signs used for speed restrictions actually just have a reflective coating and two white circles in lieu of the lamps. Modern headlights, coupled with the coating, make these boards far more visible than in the 70s. But they're also supported by the biggest change related to the installation of TSRs, and it isn't actually related to the signs themselves. In the 1950s, BR had introduced AWS, or the Automatic Warning System. A system of magnets and other equipment had been developed in response to safety concerns and accidents in the past. We are definitely going to cover this in more detail in a later episode. But the very short version is that magnets were set up at signals in various other places, and that system has the ability to sound a warning tone inside the cab of an approaching train if the signal isn't at a clear aspect. If it's not a green, it can sound a warning horn in the cab of the train. The biggest move forwards towards safety was that from 1977, a temporary AWS magnet was placed at the advanced warning board of most TSRs. This means that if the signage related to the signal wasn't visible for whatever reason, that driver would still receive an AWS alert that he has to respond to, that he can't miss. He would know something was wrong. If he couldn't see the reason for the alert, he would be obliged to bring his train to a stand and contact the signaller. The information provided in the ones, the signage, the route knowledge and the AWS equipment all combined together should make an incident like this very unlikely to happen again. Travelling over a speed limit at four times the limit should be a thing of the past. Except it isn't quite. In October 2018, a London North Eastern Railway service travelled through a 20 mile an hour speed restriction at Sandy South Junction, Bedfordshire. Its speed, around 120 miles an hour, six times the limit, 40 mile an hour faster than the discretion at Nuneaton. The speed restriction had been in place for around a day at the point the driver approached the warning equipment. It had been implemented due to the discovery of a crack in the rails of a set of points. The restriction had been communicated to LNER but they haven't passed it along to their drivers. Through a variety of factors, including some distraction and misinterpretation of warning signals, the driver didn't realise that a speed restriction applied to him until he saw the commencement board and he applied the train's full service brakes, which brought the train down from 125 miles an hour to 121 miles an hour. The watchman at the points understandably reported the incident and the cogs began to turn on that investigation. Although no injuries, death or damage occurred as a result of this infraction, the potential was certainly present, which is why an accident or an incident that lasted a matter of seconds, start to finish, resulted in a full RAIB investigation, with five recommendations to the industry attached. I suppose it 
does go to show that there is always room for error as well as improvement. The last thing I would like to let you know about is the fact that Nuneaton Station features a memorial to those who lost their lives in the accident. The plaque was unveiled 40 years after the event and was funded by Nuneaton Memories, which was founded by Mark Palmer. Unveiled on the 9th of August 2015, the plaque reads Remembering those who lost their lives and those who were injured in a crash at this station on June 6th, 1975. We acknowledge the work of the emergency services and all those who helped with the rescue operation. Damage is repaired, the network moves on, systems change and develop, a new rolling stock is brought in. More often than not, these incidents leave lasting scars on the communities where they occur. So much has changed between 1975 and now, but the fact that even 40 years after the morning driver McKay drove his train into disaster, this plaque was funded and unveiled by the local community is testament to that fact. Thank you yet again for tuning in to Signals to Danger. I've been Dan. We're now a fortnightly podcast, so that means that your next episode will be released at midnight on the 28th of September, just in time for your Monday commute. Once again, please connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Share with your friends or your colleagues, anybody that you think might be interested. I'll always be grateful for every single listener, but I'd be really happy to be able to welcome even more of you. As ever, the opening credits of this episode were Light Goes Away by Doug Maxwell, closing credits were Russian River by Dan Hennig, and the music throughout was Maestro Flak Allel by Jesse Gallagher. Till next time, travel safe. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.